we were working with a client and it was actually a snake anti-venom case. So that is by far what my kids think of as the coolest case I've ever worked on. That was like my deepest early dive into ITC litigation and probably what sparked my own personal interest in it. Welcome to IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield. Keeping tabs on the International Trade Commission is critical for any business engaging in trade across the U.S. border. And in recent months, there has been a great deal of news coming out of the ITC, from compelling cases to turnover of administrative law judges. Wolf Greenfield shareholder Libby DeMarco joins us now to share her thoughts on the latest developments at the ITC. Now, before we get started, it's worth noting that Libby was recently named shareholder at Wolf Greenfield. She's got a deep interest in client interaction with ITC matters. So first, Libby, congrats on the news and tell us a little more about your personal and professional background. I'm still uh, getting used to being introduced as a shareholder at Wolf Greenfield is pretty new for me, but I'm I'm so thrilled to have received the promotion. I've been with Wolf Greenfield for pretty much my whole career. I joined the firm back in 2012, right after I completed a one-year judicial clerkship. And in the roughly 10-ish years now that I've been here, I've had, I would say, a, a wide variety of both personal and professional experiences. On the personal side, I've done everything from meet Weird Al Yankovic backstage at a concert to having two beautiful children. And I guess in my most recent evolution, I've gone from a person who had never run more than two consecutive miles to now training for my first marathon. On the professional side, I've been involved in a number of really exciting litigations. And as you sort of already alluded to, Quite a few of them have been ITC cases, and so I've developed an ongoing and growing, I would say, interest in ITC litigation. Let's dive into your interest in the ITC and some of your client background related to it. Sure. So I started working on ITC cases, as I remember it, pretty much as soon as I walked in the door at Wolf Greenfield. I think in my first month, some of the team here was gearing up for a Sony ITC case, and At the time, I was sort of just helping out, you know, an extra pair of hands, working on procedural stuff, helping them with exhibits and just making sure documents were in order. And then a few years later, I had my first sort of integral role in an ITC case that was in 2014. And we were working with a client, BTG, and it was actually a snake anti-venom case. So that is by far what my kids think of as the coolest case I've ever worked on. (laughs) I tell them about how, you know, I had to learn how snake bite works and anti-venom treatments. That was like my deepest early dive into ITC litigation and probably what sparked my own personal interest in it. Then between 2016 and 2018, I was involved in a series of ITC cases for our client Sony, and those related to magnetic tape cartridges, which I learned a lot about. I felt like I was almost on the verge of becoming a magnetic tape cartridge expert because I worked on those cases for so long. And as part of those matters, we actually had an opportunity to work on some contested issues in front of the U.S. Customs and Border Control. So that was actually a really interesting experience extending even past beyond the ITC. I guess most recently, and in fact, it's still ongoing, I'm working on a case in which we represent our client Amphenol at the ITC, and that's an investigation that relates to electrical connector technology. So I've sort of spanned the gamut of different technology types at the ITC. 
It's hard to find any theme over the last couple of years that hasn't been touched in some way by the pandemic. It's had an immeasurable impact on legal proceedings, to be sure, and the ITC was no exception. What are some of the ways that the ITC has had to adjust to the quote-unquote new normal? Yeah, you know, I think like all forums, the ITC had to, or maybe I should say most forums, because maybe some forums were already there, but like many forums, the ITC had to basically completely rehaul how it did hearings. In the very early days when I think a lot of us thought the pandemic would be shorter than it turned out to be, the ITC delayed a bunch of hearings by weeks and then months. So I think we were sort of waiting to see what would happen. And then in the summer of 2020, when it became clear there wasn't an obvious endpoint in sight, the ITC adopted a virtual platform, they went with WebEx and went from everything being in person in Washington, DC to everything being virtual by WebEx from Markman hearings and monthly status conferences to full evidentiary hearings, essentially a trial virtually by video. And I think this is true for for district court, for basically anyone who's done a virtual hearing. It, It was a complete 180 shift just from how things had been done. And initially, it was maybe a little, people were hesitant. But, you know, I've been through one now, Wolf Greenfield, we just had a full virtual hearing back in November for the Amphenol case that I mentioned. And not only do I think it went really well at probably as well as it would have gone or even better than if we had been in person, but it was a really unique experience because of the way that we utilized Wolf Greenfield's firm resources. We really had the whole team behind us. You know, we needed our IT team. We had really great involvement and support from them, our managing partner, the executive committee. People who were not directly involved in the litigation were supporting us in a way that you don't always get to experience when a trial team goes down to D.C. and it's just eight of us and we're there off in our own little island. It was really like a team sport. So it was a really, really great experience. It may be the only time we get to do a full evidentiary hearing virtually, but I, it was really, really great. We've seen the ITC move away from written testimony and rely more on spoken testimony. Can you share some of the pros and cons of this trend and how legal teams are adjusting? Yeah, absolutely. So just, I guess, by way of background, one of the more unusual aspects about ITC practice historically has been the emphasis on written testimony, which we call witness statements. You know, when you go to a jury trial in district court, obviously it's all live and there's a really important emphasis on what your witnesses look like to a jury. At the ITC, you would typically present testimony in a written form of a witness statement, which is like an affidavit. It's prepared in advance, your witness signs it, and then you give it to the judge. So your judge doesn't necessarily get to see the witness putting on a star performance and get to know the witness and assess credibility because it's written down. But the witness would still be cross-examined. And so in some ways, the judge's introduction was in an adversarial setting. And so, you know, it had certain challenges. Over the last five years, there's been a shift at the ITC back toward live witness testimony, like you would see in a jury trial. And I think one of the the biggest pros, the biggest advantage of going to live testimony is that your witnesses, your friendly witnesses, really get to showcase their credibility, maybe their background, and make a more personal connection with the judge, which can be really helpful. At the same time, 
ITC hearings are short. They're typically five days long. Sometimes they're only three days long or two days long, but you won't have a two month long ITC hearing. And so if you have only five days and that's split between the patent holder and the accused respondent, it's not a lot of time to have witnesses up there speaking. And when you had witness statements, you could get a lot more testimony in in that five day period. You don't get extra time when you have live witness testimony, you still get the five days. So you're having to make strategic decisions in terms of how big your case can be and how much evidence you can actually get in to support it earlier on if you're going to be with live witness testimony. So it's definitely, there's some real advantages, but there's some real challenges that it presents as well. Now let's chat a little bit more about personnel news as it relates to the ITC. They recently appointed a new administrative law judge, which is the third new ALJ appointment in the last three years. Can you share some of the impact that this turnover is having on the ITC? That's a really interesting question. It's been fun. I've had the opportunity as well to be with, I think, Wolf Greenfield. We've had a case now in front of all three of the newest ALJs. So we had ALJ Cheney when he, very shortly after he was appointed in one of the Sony cases. We've been in front of ALJ Elliott, who was the second most recent appointed ALJ. And then our hearing in November was in front of ALJ Bhattacharya, who is the newest judge. So we've gotten firsthand experience, which has been great. One of the most, I think, concrete ways that you can see this change is the shift back to live testimony, because all three of those new ALJs, they have rules that require live testimony rather than written testimony. So that's one really concrete example of a shift. I think another way that this is going to impact the ITC bars, for example, Judge Bhattacharya, the newest appointed ALJ, she used to be in the Office of Unfair Import Investigations as a staff attorney. So she has an incredible wealth of ITC experience herself coming to the bench and bringing that with her, I think will be really beneficial for all parties. I also think it's interesting because typically you learn a lot, you know, there's only six ALJs at a time. And that's one of the unique things about ITC practices, you can really get to know the judges and their practices and what they like and don't like and require. But when the judges are changing a lot, it's it's you're constantly adapting because every judge is different. And so if you knew the six judges really well, and now you have three new ones, you have to make sure that you're staying adaptable and staying on top of how they differ, how they're similar, and what you might need to do differently in front of each judge. So it's, it's definitely an interesting time. The Federal Circuit recently ruled against the ITC with a presidential decision for Japanese electronics company Kyocera. Give us a little overview of the case. Sure. Yeah. So this was a fairly recent decision. The parties in the case were Kyocera, who was the complainant and the patent rights holder. And then Koki was on the side of the respondent, the one accused of infringing. And the technology related to spring power nailers. So, for example, one of the accused products was cordless power nail gun. So, you know, you would get it at Lowe's, for example, was one of the exhibits attached to the complaint. The Federal Circuit decision touched on a number of legal issues, including claim construction, but I think one really interesting aspect in particular related to the admissibility of expert testimony based on the level of ordinary skill in the art, we call it. At the ITC, before it went up to appeal at the Federal Circuit, the parties had 
essentially agreed to what the level of skill in the art would be for this technology. And they agreed that it required at least two years of experience specifically in power nailer design. Kyocera's expert that it used for the case did not have any experience specifically in power nailer design. I think he had a PhD and was you know, very well educated, but didn't have that practical experience. And so didn't actually meet the definition that they had agreed was appropriate. The ALJ and the ITC nonetheless allowed Kiyosera's expert testimony to be admitted on the issue of literal infringement, but not under the doctrine of equivalence. Now, both parties appealed that decision. Kiyosera appealed it and said to the Federal Circuit and argued that all of the expert testimony should have been admitted on literal infringement and doctrine of equivalence. It, it should have all been admissible. Koki said the opposite and said none of that expert testimony should have come in. The judge was right to exclude it on doctrine of equivalence, but should have also excluded it on literal infringement. And the ITC basically defended its decision. On the appeal, the Federal Circuit agreed with Koki and said, if the expert doesn't meet that ordinary skill in the art, the definition that the parties agreed to, or if they had contested it that the judge had adopted, then the expert's opinions are neither relevant nor reliable, and so they can't be admitted or considered at all. And because in this case, the definition was very clear that it required at least a minimum of two years of experience in power nailer design, and that expert had none, it was actually a pretty clear-cut application of the Federal Circuit's decision that the expert doesn't have that, therefore this testimony can't be considered. And so the Federal Circuit reversed that decision. And finally, Libby, what impact will this decision have on the ITC moving forward? It's interesting. While it was arising from an ITC appeal, the Federal Circuit's decision is broader than just the ITC. And it was not breaking new ground, but the way that the Federal Circuit articulated so clearly that if a, an expert doesn't meet the level of ordinary skill, their testimony cannot be admitted it was such a crisp decision that I can see a lot more Daubert motions, they're called. So challenges to expert testimony based on this lack of qualification, citing this decision as support and possibly being granted more by, by courts feeling like they have the support from the federal circuit now to just exclude expert testimony if it's not going to meet this level of ordinary skill in the art. Our thanks to Libby DeMarco for joining us on IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield. We hope you'll subscribe to our series of conversations related to IP matters on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on legal matters related to IP, we invite you to visit our website at www.wolfgreenfield.com. Thanks for joining us on this edition of IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield.